Welcome in the Great Khan's Tent. History, Literature and Storytelling In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on YouTube. You can find us using this podcast name. Fear not, listeners, episodes will still be released on this podcast first, and it is only after a delay of a week that I will upload them onto YouTube. You can still find us on all your podcast providers first. In the Great Khan's Tent now has a Patreon. You can find a link on our website, in the Great Khan's Tent, all lowercase, dot podbean, dot com. Once again, in the great constant.podbean.com, all lowercase, on our Twitter account, or you can always email us to send you a link to it. Your support, although not necessary, would be much appreciated to show that you support this podcast. Thank you. If you have any suggestions, comments, or complaints, please be sure to email us at all lowercase in the great Hans tent at gmail.com. That is in the great Hans tent at gmail.com. We would love to hear from our listeners. Thank you for listening. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the first episode of a special series here on in the great Hans tent. My name is Saf Beg and I'll be your host. In this series of special episodes, I hope to educate you, the listeners, by developing a historical background for the 1001 Nights, also commonly referred to as the Arabian Nights, by examining the history of these tales, the history of the manuscript, and finally, the history of the translations and their translators. Within the field of translation, I hope to examine the numerous extant translations, mainly in English, both in adult literature and subsequent iterations in children's literature. In approaching this subject in an academic manner, I hope to make you understand why I chose to tackle such an extensive subject, especially as the first series in the Great Khan's Tent. To accomplish what I have set out to do in this series of special episodes, it would be appropriate for me to discuss a little bit of my own academic and scholarly history to understand how and in what manner I am approaching this topic. I have always had a fascination for history even as a kid, which is what drew me to the multitude of hobbies I currently engage in, such as philately or commonly referred to as stamp collecting. The actual fire of history that lives within my soul was stroked by my paternal uncle, who wrote and co-authored several books, including one about my ancestor Behram Beg, or more commonly known as Behram Khan in the Mughal Empire. This book opened my eyes as a young child on what I could accomplish if I followed my passions. Well, to be honest, this wasn't really the case at all. As I grew up and hit my teen years, like many that did in the early 1990s, I was heavily involved in video games, mainly on the PC, and to be honest, I still am, 
but I have moved on to the more enjoyable console variety of games. This had led my parents to believe that I could have a successful career in the information technology sector of the workforce. So I did like what many immigrant children did, accepted my parents' advice, and I went to college and got my systems analyst and computer programming diplomas. Working within the IT field in the financial sector for a few years made me realize that my life is not meant to be surrounded by four walls of a cubicle and sitting in front of a computer screen solving inane and frankly mind-numbing mundane issues for users who often were just as bored as I was. As I was contemplating what to do, the 2008-2009 mortgage crisis hit and I found myself out of a job. This was a godsend as it finally lit a fire in me to pursue what I really wanted to do and enrolled myself into York University here in Toronto within the History Department where I focused on Middle Eastern, Central Asian, South Asian, and East Asian history. I could say that it was here where I was introduced to the 1001 Nights, but that would be factually inaccurate. As a child, I already had, and still do to this day, have a few versions of the 1001 Nights, focusing on the usual stories such as Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, and Aladdin as they could be found usually in every bookstore of that period. Still surprising to this day, I also have a collection of stories from the 1001 Nights that have been edited for children that I had bought at a book sale during my elementary school days at Upcake Academy in Saudi Arabia. As an adult who really did not grow out of the fairy tale genre, it was at the York University bookstore where I came across a three-volume collection of the 1001 Nights titled The Arabian Nights Tales of a Thousand and One Nights translated by Malcolm C. Loins and Ursula Loins and published by Penguin Classics in 2010. This three-volume collection opened my eyes to what was truly behind this collection and the actual tales they contained complete with mature themes, a completely different world than what I had read as a child, so much so that certain stories were unrecognizable to what I had remembered. This revelation led me to become interested in the narratives that the so-called fairy tale genre and history tells us and what is usually hidden by translators in an attempt to ignore the surrounding literary work contained in primary sources and to distill it enough to produce what certain scholars believe was the actual kernel of history. This belief was furthered in my later years of history and humanity classes where I studied subjects such as the history of Baghdad and Sufism. It was here that I first encountered conversion narratives and narratives of life itself in written form, often using plain language, but sometimes in some fanciful literary form such as poetry, usually found in Sufi conversion narratives. These are often ignored in favor of a simple description of facts. It was also at this point I realized that if I was to do anything with my history undergraduate degree, I had to study further and get my master's at minimum. 
with the final goal of achieving a PhD. As I began to contemplate what topic I should approach for my master's and eventually would continue on to my PhD, I happened across two monographs, one a primary source and the other a secondary source, which led me to the Chagatai Hanit. The first monograph that I encountered was a translated two-volume primary source titled Tarikh-i-Rashidi, written by Mirza Mahmud Haydar Dughlat, also known as Mirza Haydar, a Chakhatayid from the Dughlat tribe who wrote this text in the middle of the 16th century. What excited and interested me about this source is that it is only one of two extant literary sources written by a Chakhatayid about the Chakhatay Khani. The purpose of the text in Mirza Haydar's own words was an account detailing the history of the Chagatai Khanate since, and I quote, the Mongol Khakans have ceased conquering territory and have contented themselves with the civilized world. No one among them has ever written a history and they remember their ancestors merely by oral accounts. As of this date, which is the year 951, 1544 to 1545 CE in the Gregorian calendar, there is not a soul left of this group who remembers these stories, and my audacity in this important task is based out of necessity. For if I was not so bold, the history of the Mughal Khakans would disappear entirely from the pages of time. This paragraph, written at the beginning of his manuscript, clearly indicates an element of oral history with its usual flourishes and poetic forms, was present and was an active element in preserving the history of the Khanate prior to it actually being written down in the Tarikh-i-Rashidi. This does have a parallel of similar sorts to how the 1001 Nights had been presented and preserved in some form or another, obviously in much earlier centuries. This ignited the question whether anything else was written prior to the Tarihi Rashidi in regards to the Chagatai Khanate. It was not an impossible task after all. Persian literary culture, of which Mirza Haydar was clearly aware of as he wrote his book in Persian, was clearly present in some form or another within the Chagatai Khanate, at least until it had incorporated the region known as Mahul Anar, until the middle Chagatai Khanate to the Civil War, and lasting until the early late Chagatai Khanate. To what extent it developed and remained during the late Chagatai Khanate in Bukhulistan is unknown, but clearly it was not as fluid and as flourished as Persian literary culture has usually been described. Mirza Haydar's work has been described by translators and scholars such as Wheeler M. Thaxton as, I quote, shockingly plain and written in an, quote, unadorned style indicating a more simpler form of writing was occurring. Apart from the usual historical narratives, the Tarihi Rashidi also contained certain conversion narratives featuring Sufi sheikhs and their mystical workings who performed certain deeds that attempted in many cases unsuccessfully to bring the people of Mughalistan into the light of Islam. Unfortunately, the Tarihi Rashidi was also subject to the earlier mentioned whims of the translators who picked up and chose to create a more historical document resulting in 
forms such as poetry, Sufi tales, and the like being largely excluded. Recent efforts by scholars in Iran to publish Persian works have successfully published everything but with the recent geopolitical situation and the lack of interest, it remains to be seen whether a new translation will ever be published to make it more accessible. The presence of this sort of conversion narrative led me to find a second monograph, a secondary source, this time dealing with the subject matter of conversion narratives focusing on the Mongols in Russia, the so-called Golden Horde. This source was written by Devin Divis and his monograph, Islamization and Native Religion in the Golden Horde, Baba Tukla's and Conversion to Islam in Historical and Epic Tradition, which was published in 1994 by the Pennsylvania State University Press. Within this monograph, the conversion narrative focuses on the roles played by the Khaqan of the Golden Horde and of a Sufi Sheikh Baba Tukla's and his win over the native Mongol holy men through the use of a trial by fire. It was on the back of these two manuscripts that I applied and was admitted to the School of Oriental and African Studies in London in the United Kingdom. While most of the classes I undertook there were in the field of South Asian and Persian history, the most interesting one that I found was the South Asian history class, which for a large part of the term focused on conversion narratives and the process of conversion to Islam during the Delhi Sultanates and the Mughal Empire. The above mentioned two monographs, however, continually played a role in the background of my classes and I began to formulate thoughts and ideas of how to approach the subject of oral history, conversion narratives, and using Islamic primary sources primarily written in Persian, to accomplish research in these areas. Upon receiving my Master's of Arts in History, I applied for and entered a PhD program at St. Andrews University in St. Andrews, Scotland. However, I only completed a year of study before a series of unfortunate events unfolded, resulting in my leaving the work unfinished and returning home to Canada. Regardless of how these personal setbacks happened, I was already formulating the next steps I needed to undertake my scholarly career. Upon my return to Canada, formulated it and compiled it in an order I understood and had laid it out in front of me. My work and the efforts and understanding how conversion narratives and oral history really could be understood in the context of proper history was still the focus when I was reintroduced to the 1001 Nights, which was simply sitting on my bookshelf waiting for me to undertake the effort once again to read it completely. This time, rather than just reading it simply for pleasure, I decided to undertake a study of my own accord since I was unaffiliated with any educational institution at this point in time and try to look into how narratives were formulated, what history, if there was any, being told, and what the storyteller was really trying to convey, whether it be a tale where the morals of the day were highlighted, a fanciful and fantastic version of historical events that were transformed so that the listener could understand what was occurring politically or simply listening for entertainment. Conversion narratives, however, 
were not included in the 1001 Nights, and it was clear to see why. There was no need to tell the listener, or even eventually the readers, that a conversion to Islam was happening within the wider community because the context of these stories took place where people assumed that the neighbor, their fellow patrons, or even the community they were living in were comfortably within the Islamic faith. It instead clearly marked those who would be considered outsiders by describing them through their religious affiliation, such as being a Christian, a Zoroastrian, a Hindu, or a Jew. What drew me to the 1001 Nights after a deep dive into it was not that this was a translated primary source of which it could be described as such, but rather how one translated version would directly contradict or oppose the other and how the translators themselves would often leap into this fray to decry another's efforts and were bemused and angry at the stories they contained. This new interest led me to the field of book studies and library science where I could effectively use my Master of Arts. I therefore decided that the best way I could not only contribute to the scholarly community but also to the wider society in general was to become a librarian. I have always loved books and reading which naturally drew me to the field but I understood that I could build on what I had discovered on my own enlightened scholarly journey by going through a program which would help me with how to approach the history of the book. To accomplish this, I soon enrolled in the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information in the Library Science and Information and Book History program, which I graduated in 2020, one of the first encounters I had with the subject matter in the Book History program, and to a lesser extent the Library Science and Information program, was realizing how Eurocentric it was. Of course, coming from an educational background which focused only on the so-called Western world during the Age of Exploration, the Age of Exploitation through colonialism, and through the facilitation of slavery and contract labor movements from Asia to Europe, the Americas, and other places for their colonial exploits. I was, of course, not expecting that the entirety of the book history program focused on the rest of the world to the exclusion of the Western world, but it was shocking how little it was referred to if it was referred to at all. It hence was left to my own devices to tread down the lesser-known paths and to focus on Islamic book history as it covered a wide range of geographic areas from South Asia to the Middle East, from Central Asia to Africa. One such project in the program had to deal with the process of examining a rare book in the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library and documenting it according to certain rare book formulas that had been provided. I set out in search of doing something different, but I had failed to find anything of interest that could also fit in the project requirements. However, as I tepidly searched for something that I knew would be boring to my own interests, but would meet the requirements, I came across one of the first English translations of the first French translation of the 1001 Nights. This was titled The Arabian Nights Entertainment, consisting of 1001 stories published by Harrison and Company between the years 
1780-1788 CE. Once the excitement of finding one of the first English translation of the 1001 Nights and holding it in my hands had died down, the thought appeared if I would be able to find, for my own scholarly interest, a manuscript stored somewhere in the library of one of the first Arabic originals. After all, the Tarihi Rashidi did still have the original published multiple times in Persian, both within the South Asian continent and Iran itself, and so I began my quest to approach and build an understanding of how the first translation of the 1001 Nights came about and whether the original still existed. My quest and the answer for this question was not as easy nor as simple as it first appeared. Firstly, one must understand that the 1001 Nights in its original format was not meant to exist as a manuscript or even a compilation of manuscripts. As Robert Irwin and other scholars have pointed out in several articles and monographs, many of these tales were not meant to be in a written format, but rather their original purpose was to be in an oral format to be told time and time again by storytellers in public venues such as a coffee shop, places where men could congregate and listen to in a genial setting with like-minded people. This is clearly evidenced by the number of repetitions and recapulations that are present in the text and that may have become known to you, the listeners, as you listen to the previous episodes such as during the occurrence of a break when moving into a new night and then recapping what just had occurred prior to the start of a new night. Secondly, the language that the 1001 Nights had existed in, at least during the 1200s to 1600s CE, was neither classical nor what we would call today a modern form of Arabic, but what Robert Irwin rather calls Middle Arabic, with its own distinctive grammatical peculiarities and to some extent its own vocabulary. According to Paulo Limos Horta, being written in Middle Arabic had led this piece of literature to become a new literary genre and a mass literary phenomenon, which catered not only to the high class of listeners and literati, but rather to the major cities of the Arabic-speaking world and to the middle class of tradesmen and merchants which populated these cities. Thus, the 1001 Nights played a pivotal role in creating an array of texts with many variations and fusions of different methods of oral storytelling that were put down into written form. The earliest evidence scholars possess of the 1001 Nights existing in written form is in a 9th century manuscript fragment located in the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago Archives. This fragment, described by Nabia Abbott in a 1949 scholarly article titled A Ninth Century Fragment of the Thousand Nights, New Light on the Early History of the Arabian Nights, published in the Journal of Near Eastern Studies, Volume 8, pages 129 to 164, provides evidence of the existence of the 1001 Nights genre existing within Islamic manuscript production that had been created either through patronage or for the purpose of trading. Once the commission was completed or the manuscript was bought 
it would have been directly incorporated into personal collections and libraries for those who could afford them. Patrons who created these manuscripts for trade could have been for the purpose of selling copies by booksellers who existed in some form or another in Islamic cities. Scholars do have evidence of booksellers being present and the existence of entire districts being composed of booksellers and the accompanying industries to facilitate the production of manuscripts. As evidenced by extant lists of manuscripts like a catalogue of books for sale, or to put it into modern terms, the online library catalogue that everyone uses at their public or university library that have been found in places such as Baghdad. This 9th century fragment, as described by Abbott, consists of two folios. The first is a flyleaf, which was originally, and the second was the first folio of the 1001 Nights, which contained the title page, a few lines of the beginning text, and a couple lines of the first page of the text. The title page, as translated by Abbott, consists of five lines, a book of tales from a thousand nights. There is neither strength nor power except in God, the highest, the mightiest. Abbott's translation of this fragment highlights an interesting and important point, which we will approach in the later episodes regarding translations. The work as we currently know it, that is, the 1001 Nights, or in Arabic, Alf Layla Walayla does not appear to be present in this fragment, but is simply titled Thousand Nights, or in Arabic, Alf Layla. This would imply that the title of the tale as we currently know it either had evolved in some manner and was known by a different name, or that the present day title is a product of later centuries when it was changed for reasons only known to the writers of the manuscript, as we can only speculate at this point. My own scholarly opinion is that with similar works that are or were primarily oral in nature, the addition of supplementary elements such as a framing device to tie the story together, or even the inclusion of additional stories, may have resulted in a change of title as the subject matter changed. Another, even more simpler reason was that the title as we know it today was created as it was far simpler and easier in a rhyming sense when said orally. Abbott herself, however, evaluates this fragment as being a selection of tales from a currently non-existent parent manuscript, which would imply that there was an entire manuscript already in existence, which a writer of this manuscript had referred to in order to build his selection and leading credence to this theory that by writing Writing Alf Leila in the title, the reader will automatically know where the source material lay for this manuscript. The additional text within this fragment that referred to the 1001 Nights is 16 lines picking up in the middle of a tale beginning with the traditional Muslim Bismillah and then identifying that it was a particular night and continuing with the traditional night sentences that listeners may well be aware of in previous episodes. However, this section of the text is in a dilapidated state with many lines missing, resulting in a disjointed translation. The brackets used by Abbott in translating these lines were assumptions made by her on what these lines refer to. The translation follows, In the name of Allah the Merciful, the Compassionate. 
bracket unknown close bracket night bracket unknown close bracket and when it was the following night said dinazad o my delectable one if you are not asleep relate to me the tale of which you promised me and quote striking examples of the excellencies and shortcomings the cunning and stupidity the generosity and avarice and the courage and cowardice that are in man instinctive or acquired or pertain to his distinctive characteristics or to courtly manners syrian or bedouin open bracket and shirazad related to her a uh, open bracket t close bracket tale of elegant beauty open bracket of so and so the question and close bracket his open bracket f close bracket frame or craft open bracket sh close bracket she becomes more worthy than they who are or do not open bracket or close bracket else more worthy or malicious than they line 16 has no legible texts except for lines that are present at the end of the sentence this fragment refers to the common repetition present in the 1001 nights which takes place at the start of a new night here dunyazad identified as dinazad takes her sister shehrazad here shirazad to continue the story of the previous night if she wasn't sleepy. However, what the story she was asking for is unknown, as Dunyazad asks this type of phrases relatively commonly, and Abbott provides five examples of what it might have been referring to, making it hard to exactly pinpoint what night or even what story she is referring to. Furthermore, the inclusion of the names of two different groups of Arab peoples, that is the Syrian and the Bedouin, and their manners is something new that I have thus not encountered so far on this scholarly journey. This might indicate that the fragment and consequently the story Dunyazad is asking for might be related to currently unknown figures who might play a prominent role in creating contrasting textual images for the reader, which would either make them laugh if told in a jovial manner or highlight the commonalities or differences of both groups. Dunyazad might be even referring to a story which isn't present currently within what we call the complete text. This raises three interesting questions regarding the textual history of the 1001 nights that arise from this fragment. Firstly, if this text is a selection of stories from a complete version of the 1001 nights, as she surmises, then the patron for whom this manuscript was created must have either known or was extremely familiar enough with the overall framework, that is the story with Shansha Sheryar, Sherezad, and Dunyazad, that the patron could have simply requested it not to be included, and the inclusion of differences between Syrians and Bedouins could have also played a part. This question would imply that there were complete manuscripts being produced, making the supposed patrons one of a number who owned a selection rather than a whole manuscript, although that cannot be confirmed. 
Secondly, if the 1001 Nights was so well known as a manuscript in the 9th century at this point in time, and patrons would be looking for a selection of tales, at what levels were the 1001 Nights being sold at to justify the creation of a selection? Additionally, how did sales compare to the complete collection? I realize that there is no data or hard evidence to answer these questions, but speculatively, one could answer that due to the cost, a selection would have been more desirable than an expensive complete collection unless the patron had sufficient means. However, we cannot be sure of this at the end of the day. Lastly, undertaking the assumption using Abbott's thesis that these are a selection of tales, then the assumption prior to the question could be made that rather than being made for sale or as a trade copy, this fragment was from a manuscript that was produced for a particular storyteller in Syria for his own craft to refer to when performing. If this seems likely, would this mean that each storyteller had their own copy to refer to and were they able to either request or write themselves whatever story seems more fascinating or worked in that place and time? If so, then there could never have been either a central or a complete collection of the 1001 Nights since each storyteller would have their own selection of tales to refer to thus making each manuscript distinctive. The resulting extant copies after this period of the 1001 Nights, which scholars currently possess, could have been a single storyteller's copy which serendipitously survived and was disseminated in the future after he had long died. These three questions would seem to me to form the foundation of a central question of how does an oral text survive? What formats does it survive in? This attempt could be undertaken by better Arabic scholars than myself and would, in my opinion, be a central question in trying to understand how the 1001 Nights came to exist in the present day. Going back to the examination of the fragment, it contains several different types of marginalia consisting of a rough outline of a letter, a doodle of a figure of a man, and various phrases and sentences of indeterminate authorship. Abbott concludes that due to the existence of this type of marginalia, that the fragment could be considered as waste paper, at least by the year 879 CE, which would make the paper which the fragment uses to be created outside of the Egyptian region as until the 9th century, or as Abbott terms it, the 3rd century of Islam, that papyrus was used as a writing material, although the creation of paper was known in Egypt. It was only until the first half of the 4th century of Islam, or the first half of the 10th century, that the manufacture of paper in Egypt really overtook papyrus production. Abbott therefore concludes that while some documents could have been written in paper that were important at this time, it would be cost prohibitive to produce a manuscript of selective tales from the 1001 Nights within Egypt itself. Abbott instead provides two locations for the creation of this paper, namely Iraq or Syria, both which served as literary centers for the respective caliphates, the Umayyads in Syria, and Abbasids in Iraq. She concludes, through the existence of certain marginalia, that the manuscript must have been created 
during the first quarter of the 9th century in Syria and prior to its destruction and eventual resting place in Egypt, it was in possession of its unnamed owner who had lived in northern Syria. Here she points to a marginalia to provide evidence for this. In one extant marginalia, the rough draft of a letter refers to someone traveling back from Anatolia to Antioch. To further support this thesis, she contends that the creation of the fragment was not a result of the degradation of the manuscript, but instead of the political and military struggle between Ahmed ibn Tulun, 868-883 CE, the founder of the Tulun dynasty in Egypt, and his rival, Ahmed ibn al-Mudabir in Syria, during a period of political uncertainty of the Abbasid Caliphate. The central reason was an attempt to control the regions of Syria and Egypt, resulting in the sacking of the port city of Antioch in Muharram 265, which corresponds to Gregorian calendar of September 878 CE. This sack of Antioch laid open the ownership of the manuscript and probably gained its status as booty for a soldier and finally it had ended up in Egypt as a fragment of a, a whole. Abbott contends that the resulting destruction of the original manuscript had occurred in this period. Here I must disagree with Abbott's conclusion regarding the originality of the manuscript and the eventual fragment. While I do not have qualms about where the manuscript had been prior to the siege of Antioch, the resulting destruction of Antioch its travels to Egypt, and the resulting creation of the fragment. This all seems plausible, and I do not have issues with its supposed history. As we will get further into the topic of translations, as I mentioned before, and the origin story of the 1001 Nights in a later segment, I do not want to spend time on it in this episode, so the short answer simply distilled is to acknowledge that the creation and spread of the 1001 Nights in Arabic was mainly due to Baghdad serving as the center of a new literary movement across the Arabic world sponsored by the early Abbasid Khalifas where literary topics such as philosophy, history, theology and other topics were composed, manuscripts produced and eventually distributed throughout the Khalifate. It is extremely likely that a complete version of the 1001 Nights was in existence there and it is not far-fetched to assume that if a patron was willing to pay the price for the production of his selection for it to be produced in Syria, then it is not far-fetched to assume that the same patron could have either travel to Baghdad to acquire a copy from the multitude of booksellers or created a selected selection of stories they wanted or for a bookseller to import one into his store from Baghdad to Syria and sell it there. There are really no barriers for the scholars to assume this. Syria and Baghdad were both firmly within the realm of the Abbasid Caliphate during this period. There is plenty of evidence that scholars were moving back and forth to different regions in pursuit of their goals, thus making it likely that where a scholar traveled to, booksellers and eventually parallel industries followed. In addition, 
patrons had existed almost everywhere where there was money and a distinct class system was present to ensure that happened. While we do not have enough evidence to directly prove how the 1001 knights were making their rounds within the Arab world, it would not be a stretch to say that it existed in some form or another during the Umayyad Caliphate. The distinctively Persian names of Shehrazad and Dunyazad in Arabic form could not have originated in Syria. Although not wanting to get into the topics for the reasons behind the Abbasid revolution and the Umayyads, it would be sufficient here to mention that the Umayyads were distinctively Arabic in character and attitudes towards non-Arabs was distinctively not welcoming. It would be shocking that Syria of all places during this period would be willing to produce a manuscript with distinctively Persian characteristics. Rather, I would like to surmise that the patron who funded the creation of this manuscript, whether he was the original owner or the bookseller, either asked for the inclusion of the comparison between Syrians and Bedouins because these two may have been what the patron could construe as being true Muslims who were not a mixture of Arab and Persian culture as was common in Baghdad. Another simpler reason could be that the bookseller knew his market and asked for this inclusion because it would sell well to a Syrian audience. In the end, we simply cannot know. Lastly, the existence of marginalia, which points and refers to Antioch and Anatolia, as Abbott contends, does not point out where the original was created, but rather where it was stored, where the writer of this marginalia had lived after the sacking of Antioch, as Abbott contends. It cannot account for any period prior to the marginalia having been written. At the conclusion of this special episode, I would like to state that this clearly is a first step in decoding the history of the 1001 Nights as much as can be possible by the evidence we currently possess. I attempted to do so by examining my own scholarly history so that the listeners know how I am approaching this subject matter and that I do have experience of working within the field of, of oral and textual history. This episode and the subjects discussed here helps to build a foundation on how I am going to approach the 1001 Nights. By briefly examining the first fragmentary evidence we currently possess for the existence of a written manuscript of the 1001 Nights, something I may again approach as new information arises, proves that there are important steps to undertake in building the somewhat detailed history of the 1001 Nights. This history sets the scholar on the path proving that the 1001 Nights had existed some time prior to it being written down. The production of manuscripts of the 1001 Nights clearly show that they were in two formats, one which could be considered a complete collection of which we have no evidence for, and another where selective manuscripts adopted from complete manuscripts based on certain criteria of either the patron or the bookseller 
had been present. The only argument I present is that the manuscript history of the 1001 Nights clearly points to Baghdad as the center of the complete and of the selective manuscripts and its eventual dispersion to the rest of the Islamic world. In the next special episode, I will examine the history of the 1001 Nights and the first phases of translation that had occurred at this time. Thank you for listening. This episode has been written, edited, and produced by Saf Big. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day and or night. And may the journeys on which you are set upon be fruitful. Thank you for listening.